When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today we return to the gods of selfish music. Throughout time, people like Stravinsky, Pierre Henri, Miles Davis enter the cultural dialectic and reclaim the virtues of selfishness. They see the climate for what it is. They don't like it. (laughs) And they find a bit of power where they can move laterally. These characters sometimes are interested in fame and money, for sure. But centrally, they're psychotic about control, ripping back that control to satisfy their own private pleasures. That attitude, sometimes driven by total anger or bizarre megalomania, creates the things that we ostensibly just remember. Like the brain needs to be shocked to create a memory. The legend of Salieri that's perpetuated by the film Amadeus, one of my favorite films of all time, is that he thought he was a genius until meeting Mozart. The funny part is that he can't see until Mozart's shadow is cast over him that His musical ambition is basically to just rearrange the notes that other composers have proved are successful together. And there's nothing wrong with that at the time. People go out to see music and are very pleased when it sounds the way that they expect it to sound. This is a harmonious relationship between a mediocre composer and an uncurious audience, right? It's a timeless tradition. But when he meets Mozart, he is troubled (laughs) because everything that he believes in is cast into question. The rearranging of notes in itself just sound without a connection to what it actually represents underneath it is just noise. And he's given his life to something that he now realizes is not really real or it's real within the public sphere of affirmation and ascension 
but it has no intrinsic redeeming quality, hence the fact that we don't listen to his music anymore. So there's something to this idea that you have to shock the brain enough so that it knows it's experiencing something new. This is one of my favorite Miles Davis pieces from Live Evil. It just feels perfectly ineffable and out of reach. Never defining exactly how you're supposed to feel, but giving you the space of total opaqueness. In Miles Davis and Bob Dylan's case, they live in parallel moments where both of them are being chased by aesthetic hounds. It's a strange thing to be announced as the leader of a cultural frontier. I know nothing about it, but <laughs> it's fascinating to see people so comfortable in that situation I can't even fathom where Bob Dylan's mind is at in Don't Look Back. The ease to which he handles all those interviews hung over in the morning with the shades on. The way he just wipes the floor with these really out of touch interviewers is amazing to watch. Miles Davis is getting chased by people who want to be near the glow of genius. Other musicians want to sound like him. Fans want to just touch his fucking hand. And labels want to see where the entire genre is going to go. But it's interesting that once he is announced as the top jazz composer of his time, in order to remove himself and find a personal space where he can exist, he literally removes himself. On a lot of my favorite Miles Davis tracks, he is not there. He leans back on the band, who are some of the greatest players of all time, who are literally just searching for something. It's just 12-minute tracks of people searching for something. No destination. No goal. Thank you. 
Dylan, he's being chased, and people want everything he has, and they want to follow him like like Jesus Christ. Like, I know a guy who ate one of his sandwiches that he left half-eaten on a plate in Colorado. People wanted just fucking germs, man. And his reaction, as John Baez and everybody is pushing him to deliver this political truth, is to go inside of himself and take all the power back and just completely abandon them. This is a kind of fork in the road where selfishness can transform into a deep altruism if the discoveries of the artists are genuine reflections of actual searching, actual private investigation. But you're always free to reject that and accept the selfishness of a different artist that you trust. But I think it's cool to challenge yourself to understand the classics for yourself and to not ahistorically take for granted the barriers they knocked down. That's something I've always had a lust for, is when I see someone do something difficult, I naturally want to expand my vocabulary, and I want to have those tools that would allow me to make any kind of choice that could liberate my ideas. There's also a realm that I think about a lot when these people get this famous, it's a very post-coital realm where the serotonin wears off. The struggle to get there is over. And I can't imagine being trapped inside the historical script that people seem to think you're writing. That's a bizarre world. And I have to think it twisted and mangled these people and in ways made them want to escape. To where, though? The earth is full of Bob Dylan and Miles Davis fans. You can't go anywhere. It's possible when you get up into the ivory tower and you look down and you have some kid sleeping on your lawn asking you to tell him about the next fucking chapter of Game of Thrones, down in the bile of your exhaustion, you may feel that the world is just a, a slush bucket full of consumers that refuse to think for themselves and refuse to write their own story and believe ceaselessly in some fantasy parental entity. And maybe you were just a kid like them and you never asked for that responsibility or didn't know that that was going to be your job for the rest of your life. Imagine actually wanting to change things. I know that most people think getting into music is straight up to achieve some sort of most popular kid in school, seriously like lowbrow idiot fucking dream. But follow me for one second. If you actually did want to live in a better world, even just for selfish reasons, and the only way to make that world better is to populate it with better ideas so you realize you have to do it yourself. You're in a coffee shop in New York in 1960, and you fast forward to a world where you're supposed to compete with fucking Kiss? What was once the attempt to gain respect from your peers, who you also looked up to, 
has now just become a satanic process solely focused on filling seats, selling shirts, and eventually competing to have the most fancy MTV director, like, revitalize your career. I can't imagine the smirk Dylan must have given his manager when he got that talk. It's gotta be disheartening as fuck when you look out into not just a room, but a stadium full of people you don't want to hang out with. Jerry Garcia's death was fueled largely by Cherry Garcia, the ice cream named after him, but also heroin and also trying to pay all the people on that fucking huge ass staff because he thought if he stopped, hundreds of people couldn't feed their families. So Dylan's arrival has basically taken the teen heartthrobs era and tossed it into a brush fire and just watched it evaporate. The executives that had pushed it forward were probably just trying to compensate for Elvis being drafted, and in a wild rush they created something that was super disposable once it was revealed. There were American individuals that probably could have redeemed and saved that pre-Dylan pop movement, but the number one choice, being Brian Wilson, the progenitor of the American pop sound, was identified by his own band as their problem, instead of the true secret weapon that he was that could have taken them into the next era. So what was supposed to be the ascendancy of Brian Wilson and the American pop dream instead became a cautionary tale about how we view mental health and how the attempt to repeat yourself and repeat your sales are probably nowhere near as important as encouraging evolution itself. That is what was trying to live in Brian Wilson and they fucking killed it. The Lonely Sea It never stops for you or me. It moves along from day. Oh, 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 oh,
So depending on your perspective, Bob Dylan is putting a lot of people out of jobs. Their dreams are shattering right and left as he's opening another door for young people to come forward and invent the entire new horizon. It's like clear-cutting. Whole hosts of genres can be born. The psychedelic movement, acid folk, Americana, all from seeds of the head nod that Dylan was giving. He was the first artist who could record an album of 10 or 12 songs and be the writer and publisher of all the songs. Previous to that, if Nat Cole recorded an album of 12 songs, 12 different writers and 12 different publishers wrote those songs. It was the beginning of the end of what used to be known as Ten Pan Alley. It's crazy to realize once you give people freedom, it can't be revoked. So I wonder what it was like to watch like the psychedelic flower garbage thing rise up, look around and be surrounded by those same people that were doing the teen heartthrob shit just a few years earlier and saying Dylan was shit and not even worthy of musical attention, but then realize that like, this is just going to morph into infinity and it is unstoppable. I mean, fuck the internet. It all started back then, right? It's like, the idiots could take control of any form, say it's cool, and sell that shit. It's like the revolution was already over in this really insidious way. What's there to live for? Who needs the peace corps? funny how vicious Frank Zappa is right out of the gate he like looks to his left and he's like you're gonna let Bob Dylan do that and we can do whatever we want now okay if you're a true freak you're gonna fucking take that shit and run with it right he doesn't want to hear more Fabian and Frankie Avalon but a lot of these nice boys that want to be stars that mess with their fucking hair a lot in San Francisco and probably star at the Moby Grape and great bands, but like on kind of specious values. So he's kind of like, nah, 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 get the fuck out of the way.
Mexico, in Germany, when I was a very small boy. So there was a lot of people standing around on the corners asking questions. Why are you standing around the corner, acting the way you act, looking like you look? Why do you look that way? And they asked me, and I always say, I don't It was an interview with Neil Young that kind of opened my eyes at one point where he said, you know, when people started saying the ego is bad, I was like, fuck that shit. I want to be a star. And I thought back that, you know, there's not really any Neil Young phase where he talks about Buddhism or like destroying the haughty entitled part of yourself or anything you sort of assume from the Beatles or just counterculture heroes and i'm like wait this is the guy that supported reagan actually so as you probably know being a neil young fan is to accept complete opposites all the time whether it's just sequencing a record or putting out something wildly genius and then following it up with like greendale part seven whatever it doesn't matter the guy will never ever be ripped down in terms of what he's contributed as very arguably probably the central pillar of selfish music isn't neil young's established status as the one that sort of set up the punk attitude isn't that indicative of an insanely intense ego and the propelling of somebody who is prepared to leave anyone, their bandmates, their lovers in the dust, if they aren't right for his situation. He's almost terrifying in his selfishness. But this machine of a man started very slowly and unsurely and was so scared of facing the crowd really that he was having epileptic fits on stage and his bandmates claimed sometimes faking them for a little special attention from ladies on the side. There's a lot of thorns in the psychology of this person. He's inscrutable and very difficult to decode, but it all starts in much simpler times. on the ground and my eyes aren't open and I'm standing on my knees but if crying and holding on and flying on the ground is wrong then I'm sorry to let you down but you're from my side of town and I'll miss you You can kind of see how if the Buffalo Springfield walked into a party at Frank Zappa's house, which I'm sure they did, you might think these are kind of the gentle dudes that just want to make a lot of money and take the culture for a ride. And you know what? That's exactly what they did. There's a lot of horse shit around people like Stephen Stills, a lot of mythology, and you kind of hold him up and he kind of seems like a, just a, a guy you wouldn't want to know. Here's a cool quote from Stephen Stills. 
I've been the most obnoxious, arrogant superstar to walk the streets of Hollywood. I can be an absolute bastard. Seems cool. I'm not surprised at all that Neil Young and him fought throughout all of their bands. But, I mean, keep in mind, I, I don't think any of this stuff is bad. It's just true, that's all. A lot of these people were just wildly selfish in a completely unredeeming way. Like, they just wanted to ride the rides on the carnival and contribute nothing to the culture. They were not above deceiving people. Dino Valente, who wrote Come On People Now, Smile On Your Brother, literally grew up in a carnival as a carny. <laughs> like, he learned from a young age how to rip people off. industry is getting kind of disassembled and the countercultural window opens up there's a new sincerity being pushed as asylum records comes into being there's a new kind of singer songwriter that you are supposed to trust and that kind of open field of opportunity creates a virtual red light district where all sorts of hustlers who sense this autonomous zone can come in the side and take advantage of its most naive population. In this autonomous zone, if you follow the metaphor all the way, hustlers can work a crowd just like a stripper who makes the guy in the front row feel like she really likes him. He's got it in his mind that she really likes him. That's a huge part of entertainerism. An almost underappreciated aspect of the power of true manipulation. It's something that someone like Del Shannon could never really master, that kind of evil power of acting. And then you have the undercover police of the underground. The people who are there just putting a fucking wig on and some rainbow bandana bullshit and just making the money. And fuck, those people got away with murder. So you might say that Mike Love is clearly the undercover cop in the Beach Boys who oppresses Brian Wilson's dream, pressures him to write more commercial material, doesn't see the oncoming horizon of selfish music, and he'll basically waste away in the background when punk appears and he's lost out there playing bongos with Uncle Jesse on the beach. Conversely, David Crosby played this role in The Birds, and when Gene Clark was at his peak, Instead of trying to hold his friend up to the world and take their band to unknown heights, 
David Crosby turned against his friend and tried to cripple his confidence, all in the quest to become the leader of the band, which he didn't have the talent or the songs to do at the time. This is what's morbidly fascinating about studying the birds, is that it's a constant internal car crash. Everybody trying to grab the wheel, the car spinning off of the road, with no one really caring where it goes. And in the middle of this perpetual wreck is this beautiful boy with these incredible songs that nobody really wants to play. They realize the second he scores hits and they see the checks come in, they had already decided we have to get this guy out, which is the exact opposite of what they should have done. slow down now because Gene Clark has sort of wandered into the frame and he's too deep of a character to just flippantly scroll by as some sort of selfish music contributor. He's the one, the one that could have been and he was there in the very beginning ready to create the template and lasted one year in the birds. One year. That's fucking insane. For the rest of his life, he wandered from label to label, never truly recovered his career, and by many accounts was often disheveled and confused, depending on what drug he was addicted to. I even just heard this story about him showing up to a backyard party where Bob Dylan is there, and he was clearly visibly slipping. And Dylan keeps kind of creating distance between them, like shuffling off to different conversations. But Gene Clark's clearly like wild-eyed and drunk. And he goes into Roger McGuinn's house, who has started collecting all sorts of guns. And he finds a small Uzi 
which in Gene Clark's addled mind will be hilarious. Just start waving around Bob Dylan. And somehow he trips and falls and the Uzi starts going off and dragging him around the lawn as he's shooting through the fence and killing all of Roger McGuinn's goats. I think that sort of says it all. It's a sad theme with some of these characters that they actually don't see their career slipping away. Someone like Gene Clark fought with depression his whole life, but at the same time, he's dating Michelle Phillips or just riding around LA in his Porsche, kind of acting like he's still in the birds and actually showing up at their shows and getting on stage to sing when they're trying to get him the fuck off. He's super drunk, he can't hit the notes, and he becomes exactly what you don't want him to be. It's taken me years to admit to myself that sometimes your favorite person in the band who created their entire sound, which is, you know, the Sid Barrett story, is someone that probably can't be in the band anymore, and it's maybe not so unbelievable that they can't function as a professional entity with this person. But in Gene Clark's case, I think if the pace was just a little bit slower and they recognized that he was the rudder, then they could have maybe risen to make their rubber sole if they had just sat the fuck down and listened to what was pouring out of this guy. To this day, McGuinn and Crosby still never mention Gene Clark and still don't even realize that he was the one. One time, an old friend of my family's was visiting. His name was Bobby Ingram. He just died last year. And he walked by in the kitchen as I was reading the Gene Clark biography some, you know, 15 years ago or something. And he looked down at the book, which was called Mr. Tambourine Man. David Crosby was still one of Bobby Ingram's best friends. And he looked down at the book and he was like, fuck, David like stole my cape. He's wearing my cape in that picture on the cover of the book. As a younger musician, I'm, I'm like looking at this guy who was literally in Les Baxter's Balladeers with David Crosby before the birds, you know, a walking encyclopedia of this stuff. Like Neil Young, the Eagles all stayed at his house when I was a baby. And it's so telling that he looks down at the cover of this book and sees something that David Crosby stole. And here is Gene Clark, this sweet, simple boy that was just not ready for the dynamics of stardom. And you have to understand how fast the birds were pitted up against the Beatles as the American answer that we had. They weren't worthy of it. They weren't even allowed to play on their own singles. Roger McGuinn's the only one that plays on Mr. Tambourine Man. The Beatles had been playing together for years in the trenches. They were completely well-oiled and psychologically prepared. The fact that I can watch a Beatles interview and David Crosby just pops in in the back and they identify him as one of their buddies that they smoke pot with or something is so insane to me that that little guy waddled onto the world stage because he understood 
All you have to do is tell people you're the shit, and when they're a little high, they'll just fucking believe you, man. But you'll notice in that last song, Gene Clark is talking about missing a flight. And when you read about the birds, the reason why Gene Clark supposedly left was because he had some insane fear of flying. Well, that isn't really true. When he did freak out on that plane, it's rumored that he had been on acid for a few days and he just flipped out. And on his way off the plane, as he's just saying, like, I can't handle this, Roger McGuinn passes him. And he doesn't say, are you okay? Um... What should we do? Can we help? Roger McGuinn says, You're gonna blow it for yourself, man. He doesn't say, You're gonna blow it for us. They wanted him out, and they had been working this dude ever since he came home in a fucking new Porsche, and they all looked at each other and realized the person that writes the songs gets paid. So that sound that you hear in all the 60s documentaries and on AM radio is Gene Clark's sound. The other guys are completely intelligent, important people in the history of music, but David Crosby didn't write any of the Bird singles. This isn't about focusing on the ownership of those songs so much as when a group of people truly turn against each other, it could be a platoon or a basketball team, and they seek to bring each other down at any cost. It's a terrifying atmosphere to be in, and Crosby, McGuinn, these guys have this steely disposition and this impossibly stubborn drive to become as famous as they possibly can. David Crosby gets so upset that Gene gets any attention at all. 
that he does bunny ears behind Jean's head and makes bizarre faces or like fucks around on guitar to try to grab the audience's attention. This is a level of darkness that I've barely ever heard about. Crosby ends up working on Gene Clark month after month, telling him, you can't play guitar, I should play guitar. Because after being laughed off stage at the Troubadour, dancing around in a black turtleneck trying to do a Beatles thing with a tambourine, Crosby realizes that Gene looks like an authority and he wants that guitar to cover up his belly and he starts wearing the cape. And that's really how Gene Clark becomes a tambourine man. He was relegated there and pushed there because he was just too nice and Crosby wanted his place. It's straight out of the fucking Grand Inquisitor. You've seen it again and again. The self-loathing people on the side that want the spoils and rewards that come from all the hard work are always willing to watch the innocent ones fall off the cliff and say they had no idea who pushed them. Dylan came down to the studio to check out the band working out his songs, and I think it was a very savvy business move. I think he put his arms around them and had a couple sips. But in the end, Gene Clark was the one he actually watched and was a fan of. So the fact that he passed through this cultural vortex in just a year's time and then faded away and died quite tragically. It's super ironic because in the 80s, Tom Petty came back and tried to rescue both Del Shannon and Gene Clark. With Del Shannon, he tried to produce his comeback album, never quite finished it. And then when Del Shannon found out he would not be invited into the Traveling Wilburys when Roy Orbison died, he sunk into a deep depression that led right up to his suicide. In Gene Clark's case, fucking Tom Petty covers feel a whole lot better and it injects about $250,000 into his bank account on the same weekend that he had gotten together with a heroin dealer. He shoots all the money straight up his veins and ODs immediately. And it is said that David Carradine, the other man besides David Crosby that did the most drugs in the 70s, walked up to make a speech at Gene Clark's coffin and decided to try to fight him in front of the crowd. Pulling his corpse up out of the coffin and breaking his ribcage in half, Safe to say David Carradine probably did not remember doing that and died himself in a very grisly manner. Let's take a break after that and pour out a drink for sweet Gene Clark, the man that would have changed the world and did change the world of selfish music. I came to town
subtext here is that the selfish realm where you retreat to where songs come from is what would have saved them but the impulse to join the mainstream star system was what really destroyed these bands and what's still malnourishing listeners today so a lot of these bands are just ticking time bombs moby grape 
the birds, Buffalo Springfield, all just imploding disasters waiting to happen. Just after Gene Clark leaves the band, David Crosby's going to be the next to go for being impossible to deal with in every facet of the band, sometimes just refusing to sing in the studio or breaking down into a crying fit because they didn't have time to record his version of Hey Joe. Crosby was the initial detractor when they were offered Dylan songs in the beginning. So this guy had actually rejected the thing that initially made him relevant at all. And then he went on to try to destroy his best friend who built the life raft that they were floating on. So there's a level of deep destructive behavior that you'll see resurface in the 80s when he very famously gets hauled off to prison for essentially breaking every possible law and taking the most drugs anyone's ever seen the body absorb and living through it. This is the guy who built a crack hut that could sit off stage so that if still started tuning, he could run and load his body up with enough drugs to be able to sing the next harmony. So after all the damage that this grandiose ego has caused, we look back now and it's bizarrely ironic that his great dark masterpiece for the birds was written in a moment of actual shame. And I think that kind of proves this point that when someone is cornered and forced to look inward, even a fucking asshole can write something absolutely beautiful that translates their sort of hidden pain into something of value for a listener who can also go to that private place and experience a genuine communion. Everybody has been burned before Everybody knows the pain Anyone in this place Can tell you to your face Why you shouldn't Everybody knows it never works. Everybody knows and me. I know that door. I really don't think I'm a eulogizer of the past so much as I find even the most depressing aspects of it totally fascinating. I remember a particular girlfriend I had where when music of the 60s came on, she would just shut it off so urgently that I was like, what, what is it about this that bothers you? She was just like, it's so sad. And I think that's a pretty damning reaction to all these people sort of dancing around with their jazz hands under the hot lights with their pancake makeup on and just sweating with their bugged out eyes. I think her reaction is just saying like, poor you. Like the entertainer's myth is that through the prism 
of applause and the refracting affirmation of the crowd, you will somehow gain this grand self-worth. And with the privileges we have today, we know that that will not work. We've already lived through punk. We've lived through the genesis of selfish music that taught us never to trust lies again. There's a weight on you, but you can feel it. Living like I do, it's hard for you to see. Was I hurt too bad? Can I show you daylight? How could I be sad when I know that you might look out for my love? Look out for my love. Look out. The rise of Neil Young was so insanely unlikely. It's a beautiful story, but it comes out of this complete ordinariness of Buffalo Springfield, a band jockeying in a very generic post-Birds pool. You must have been able to smell the opportunism in the air because the Birds had done relatively little to be considered America's Beatles. So if they could do that, then almost anybody with long hair and a guitar getting off a bus that has some vague inclination towards poetic bullshit might get signed. This is still only a couple years after the tsunami wave of youth culture had flooded forward from the moment the Beatles hit Ed Sullivan. Thousands and thousands and thousands of kids came away from it with this fully formed fantasy that if tomorrow they write the right hook, boom, they're on TV, shaking their head, going woo, smoking joints backstage with Dylan, and just a literal like fucking Lucky Charms rainbow is gonna fucking spill out gold fucking coins all over their chest, and women will forever find them attractive and fascinating. They didn't even know about the trappings of fucking ODing yet. They didn't even know what the fuck was going to happen to them. They just went headfirst into this entire fantasy world. Neil Young hadn't established any kind of long game plan yet. The Buffalo Springfield is just imploding and he's quitting repeatedly with really no safety net. So when he still hasn't got the courage to sing on the mic in the studio and his bandmates pretty much fully resent him, a strange character appears that suddenly believes in his voice. This is one of the gods of selfish music that is still barely understood, and his name is Jack Nietzsche.
sheer amount of music that Jack Nietzsche touched is almost impossible to catalog. He wove through so many different facets of American music. One would be his arrangement work, which is most famously associated with Phil Spector and the building of the Wall of Sound. That would open a debate in itself on how much of that sound was Jack Nietzsche's. The strings, the arrangement, everything is under the control of Jack Nietzsche, and Phil Spector is known widely to never touch the mixing board himself. Nietzsche and Spector met in 1961 in the office of Lee Hazelwood, who was actually the one who had pioneered the big reverb sound by getting an entire oil tanker towed over to his studio. sort of prove the insane ubiquitous nature of Nietzsche and how he just floats around through tons of different projects that have affected your life and you don't even know it. The first project that Phil Spector hires him for is to arrange The Crystals He's a Rebel, written by Gene Pitney, which we coincidentally covered in the first episode. But Nietzsche's fingerprints are on more things than you could possibly imagine one human being could have done. For example, he's on Rolling Stones records from 1964 to 1980. So he's on tracks like Paint It Black or Play With Fire, but he also arranged the entire choir for You Can't Always Get What You Want. The second category of his work would be his film soundtracks, which begins in 1965 and stretches across basically all of my favorite movies. He did The Exorcist. He did One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He did Hardcore. He did Cruising. He did fucking nine and a half weeks. He did the Jewel of the Nile. He was everywhere. So it sounds like he had the greatest career of all time, and it's just not true. His life constantly flirts with tragedy, ends tragically, and his solo career is a disaster, consistently. Nearing the insanity of Phil Spector, it sounds like Nietzsche dealt with some demons that were a little bit irregular. I recently read that he's very possibly descended from Friedrich Nietzsche, the legendary German philosopher. That alone is mind-blowing and probably points towards some mental issues. But his mother was a practicing medium that sort of terrified him when he was little. And throughout his relationships, there is definitely patterns of deep, deep confusion, paranoia, and some abuse. This is a very, very deeply sad guy that when he gets his chance to make the music he wants to make, it is groundbreakingly melancholy. I'm the loneliest fool in the I'm the loneliest fool 
One of the last famous things the guy did was accidentally end up on the fucking TV show Cops because some kids had stolen his hat and he was waving a gun around at them like some sort of drunken maniac in the street thinking he's Charles Bronson. And when the cops grab him and ask him what he was doing, he blathers on about how he's won various Grammys and it doesn't help his case. One of my favorite ridiculous decisions that he made, it's kind of a secret LP actually. I don't know that anyone really gives a fuck about it, but in 1966, when he was still kind of ascending from the fervor that the Stones had, because he'd been playing with them so much, executives had some ridiculous idea that maybe he could make albums that people would buy. They weren't even exotica. I don't even know what they were supposed to be. So when he's at the top of his fame in 66, his decision for his new solo record is to recut Chopin in a modern setting. And there's something about it that is really, truly the most inane decision, and yet it's so satisfying to listen back to. I mean, this guy is the ultimate loner legend, right? Let's listen to Jack Nietzsche talk about meeting Neil Young and the opportunity that he saw Neil Young's music could give him. I couldn't find a project that I really wanted to do, and they couldn't give me anything that interested me. And I kept playing him this record and saying, this is the sort of thing I want to do. And it just frightened everybody. And to this day, it's one of my favorite things. It's insane these guys found each other because Neil Young really had no one to help him out of the Buffalo Springfield and into his first solo record, which was a pretty dodgy bid. Nobody knew what was going to happen to this guy. This is way before everybody knows this is nowhere. So when his bandmates in Buffalo Springfield will not get behind him and encourage him to sing, Jack Nietzsche, for the first time in his life, is willing to tell him, you know, your voice has something different in it that's special. Without this person, I don't know what Neil Young would have become because he caught him, brought him in the studio, and said, let's work some of your new songs into something that's a whole different thing, has nothing to do with your band, and is essentially this epic recalculation of what folk music could have ever been. The lights turned on and the curtain fell down 
And when it was over, it felt like a dream. They stood at the stage door and begged for a scream. The agents had paid for the black limousine that waited outside in the rain. Did you see them? Did you see them? After hearing what they did together for our entire lives and barely remembering it was called Buffalo Springfield at the time, which it really shouldn't have been, it's crazy to hear Jack Nietzsche talk about recording expecting to fly because Neil Young wasn't even there. Neil Young was on the road, as a matter of fact, when I made that record, he wasn't there. He came back and uh, put his vocal on it after it was finished. Well, I had been hanging out with him a long time, and all the songs he was playing me, that was one of my favorites. I just played it over and over, you know, until I had it learned well enough to play and sing it myself. And I loved the song, so a lot of ideas came. And they're all, <laughs> they're all there, I mean, <laughs> I put them all in one arrangement. It may be over-arranged, I don't know. I'd have to get the chart out. A pretty good-sized string section and uh, vocal chorus. I know there's an English horn in it and uh, a pretty good-sized rhythm section, probably two keyboards, uh, two basses, three guitars. It was a, it was a good-sized session. You can tell by listening to it that it's pretty big. And you have a sense of composition, not just... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's the first one I think that I had a chance to really do that. I was just free to do what I wanted with that. And then once I had done that, I didn't want to do anything else, you know, and that seems to be the pattern today. So I will bid you a fond adieu. My plan is for next season to do the renaissance of selfish music if people seem interested. But let's have a final moment of awe for Jack Nietzsche and listen to Expecting to Fly, the time changes, the bizarre drumming that you can tell the guys may be sight reading, and the turnarounds. You'll never hear that in Neil Young again. You'll never hear the grandiose cinematic aspect in Neil Young again. It's something I really wish they would have done more of just because, selfishly, it's amazing. Could wave goodbye. 
I found.